thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome to episode 138 of The Real Food Real, where we are joined by Dr. Michael Ruscio. In today's episode, you will learn about the future of functional medicine, plus all things thyroid and gut health. We discuss personalized treatment, thyroid medication, SIBO, and so much more. Hi Michael and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to chatting with you today. For the benefit of our listeners, could you please give us a little bit of background information about you and certainly what um, your work life looks like these days? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I have my own personal health experience, which is what got me into the field of more integrative and, and functional medicine. Uh, essentially, when I was in college, I went from being very healthy to not feeling well at all. And long story short, I chased down everything that probably many listeners have done, which is I, I thought I had adrenal fatigue. I thought I had heavy metal toxicity. I thought I had hypothyroid. I, I thought I had all these problems. And what and, and pursuing those did not produce any results. The only thing that really led to improvement was identifying that I actually had an infection in my intestines. And it was the treatment of that infection that really allowed me to regain my health. And and so I, I was very moved by that experience. And ever since then, gut health has been a very, very uh, important aspect of the overall health picture to me. And now I have a clinical practice in Northern California, just outside of San Francisco. And I'm in the clinic a few days a week seeing patients. I also just finished writing a book. We've also been performing some clinical research at my office. Uh, we, we did some research on the co-administration of anti-biofilm agents along with standard SIBO treatment to see if that would enhance the treatment effect of SIBO. And we're planning on doing a study to evaluate the efficacy of natural prokinetics in preventing SIBO relapse. Uh, so, you know, I'm involved in, in both the clinical setting, the research setting, and, and also in fact-checking things through my own research for the book and for the podcast that I have and some of the writing and the lecturing that I do. So I'm pretty well steeped in, in both academia and, and the clinical side of things, and it's, uh, it's a great mix, and I'm very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Yeah, awesome. And we'll definitely discuss more about those projects and, and certainly your specialties in the area of research. With your personal experience, um, tell us more about – sort of what you went through from a testing point of view and and if that's shaped how you approach testing and functional medicine to this day. It, it has. Um, and, and for people that, that don't know of my work, I'm, I'm very – I don't know what right word here is. I, I try to be very cost effective in my testing and I don't get wrapped up in all the latest bells and whistles because I found oftentimes testing is not very – meaningful. And, and actually, as I've fact-checked some of the research behind many tests, many tests have zero clinical utility 
uh, and, and many of them have only limited clinical utility, yet, yet patients oftentimes think that they have tremendous clinical utility. And my own experience bore that out, where I performed testing on my adrenals and, and testing for heavy metals. And, and I, I would say I spent at least a few thousand dollars on testing. And some of those tests even came back positive. My, my heavy metal profile came back positive, yet I went through the detox therapy and felt no difference or no different. And I later learned that the validity of some of these more progressive heavy metal tests has been heavily, heavily criticized. And it was probably that what I was looking at, even though the paper, the lab report said it was positive, it actually wasn't a scientifically valid test. And so for, and, and so I was treating something that actually wasn't an actual problem and therefore I didn't feel any better. So yes, in my personal experience, I, I ended up doing a lot of testing on my own and that didn't provide any benefit. And it wasn't until I found a clinician actually to walk me through this that he decided to take a look into the gut. We found a parasite, treated the parasite, and that was the only thing that helped me. So it's uh, it's definitely a, a fairly pervasive problem, I think, over testing with the hopes that more testing will lead to better results. But it's really the appropriate testing that leads to better results. Yeah, absolutely. And that's obviously a big passion of yours. I listened to your podcast, which you can tell us about shortly. And I know you're always really, um, I guess, bringing that message home because there's a lot of criticism in the functional medicine space, which I'm sure you want to um, change. Now, do you mean criticism against functional medicine by by maybe like conventional medicine? No, sorry, about how it can be, um, you know, lots of testing and really expensive and so on. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, and those and those criticisms, I think, are absolutely warranted. And there, I think, there's two factions within criticism of functional medicine being too expensive. One is absolutely valid, where if someone goes to a doctor's office and and I can't convert this into into, into pounds, I'm I'm in the United States, so I'll do it in dollars. But if someone leaves the doctor's office and their first lab bill is three thousand, four thousand, five thousand dollars, yes, there there are rare times and places that that is needed. But for the most part, that is very excessive. I, I really think that if someone has zero insurance coverage, they should be able to get out the door for anywhere between 800 and $1,200 for their initial set of, of labs. And if someone has insurance coverage, that may be as, as little as zero. Um, so there, there's definitely a valid criticism of the over-testing, and there's also, I think, a valid criticism of the over-treatment, which would, of course, then correspond to a, a, a hefty and expensive supplement bill. But there's also – it's important to keep in mind that the the absolute judgment of this compared to a relative judgment is also important. So it, it, what I mean by that is if you're someone that thinks that all of your health care should be free, then even spending $200 is going to seem like a lot, Right. So, but relative to a provider that may be a bit excessive, in my opinion, relative to spending maybe $6,000, spending $800 is actually a great cost savings. But if someone doesn't feel that healthcare should cost them anything out of their pocket, even something as small as $200 will seem like a lot relatively to them. So there, there's a couple important nuances to keep in mind there, but I definitely think much of the criticism of functional medicine being too expensive is valid. And I think that we're poised to improve the way we practice functional medicine. We're learning more. Science is progressing. Clinical research is progressing. So we're learning what is most essential, what is least essential. And I think that's really the next 
step in the evolution of functional medicine, which is consolidating down to and focusing more on the things that are the most effective. And this makes treatment more time efficient and also more cost effective. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's a really exciting area for us to all move into to get much better at what we do with our clients. And, you know, of course, it's about the cost effectiveness, but the experience for the client as well. So that's really exciting. And thank you for continuing to to share that um, passion of yours, because I think a lot of people will be able to learn you know, from your thoughts around testing and the efficacy of, of that approach. Yeah, my pleasure. So I wanted to talk about the thyroid first today. And this, I think, is a nice segue considering that um, there is a lot of research around looking at how to test for the thyroid um, and any um, thyroid dysfunction. So in Australia, I, I know that, um, you know, the Medicare approved for TSH, which is a thyroid stimulating hormone to be tested. And that's pretty much it unless um, you're working with either um, a more, you know, a functional doctor who then might do um, other tests. But I know you've looked pretty closely at the research and even the more recent research around whether other tests are required. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's 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 definitely an area where I think there's there's quite a bit of unnecessary excess, and when when wading into thyroid, there's really probably three questions that someone has to ask ask themselves. Excuse me when they're when they're trying to kind of figure this all out, and that is, do I have a thyroid problem, and are and if I don't have a thyroid problem, are my symptoms coming – where are my symptoms coming from? And then also, is there thyroid autoimmunity present? Those, I think, are the three biggest things. So, you know, is the problem truly in my thyroid? If not, then where are my symptoms coming from? And also, is there thyroid autoimmunity present that needs to be addressed? Because the thyroid autoimmunity may not – manifest as symptoms for a few years. And so if you detect that early and take the appropriate steps, you may prevent a problem later down the line. And where this becomes problematic, and what happens very often in my observation, is people have symptoms and they're convinced that they're coming from their thyroid. And so they look to test more and more and more and more until they can find an imbalance, even if it's an obscure imbalance that hasn't been shown to have any clinical meaning. So they can say, aha, See, the problem is my thyroid. But what you don't hear in the back end of that is what do you do with that that meticulous lab assessment that was imbalanced? And unfortunately, the body is not like a machine where we just can't say, well, your free T3 is a little bit too low. And so we're going to push this one switch and turn that up. So really what it comes down to is first you have to figure out if you have hypothyroidism, which is actually fairly easy to assess. And if you have hypothyroidism, then you need to go on thyroid hormone to get your levels into the normal range. And for many people that, oh, I shouldn't say many, for, for a number of people, that will be enough to relieve their symptoms. However, there are many people that will have hypothyroidism in addition to other things. And so they go on thyroid hormone medication, their lab work becomes normal, but they still are symptomatic. And unfortunately, what can happen here is people can go deeper and deeper and deeper into thyroid analysis 
to never discover that the problem isn't their thyroid gland, but it's actually another system of the body, oftentimes the gut, but not exclusively the gut, that's leading to those symptoms that they're chasing down that you're attributing to thyroid. And, and the reason why the thyroid gland is often blamed is because the symptoms of hypothyroidism are so nonspecific. Um, but the, many of the symptoms of gut imbalances are very similar to the symptoms of thyroid imbalances. So what I found to be very effective clinically is to treat someone if they have true hypothyroidism and if they don't have true hypothyroidism, not to go on a witch hunt for things like the T3 to reverse T3 ratio or the levels of a reverse T3, but rather realize that if someone's not feeling well, we will likely see some imbalances in some of those further down the line assessments, but the solution to those imbalances is not found in the thyroid gland. It's found in likely general inflammation or inflammation in the gut or lack of conversion of T4 to T3 or, or a internal stress response that can be inflammatory in nature that's causing perturbations in the metabolism of T4 and T3. And so the solution to the problem is not uncovered by the expanded thyroid panel. Therefore, doing the expanded thyroid panel has little clinical utility. Now, the one area where there's probably the most argue for benefit is by using the addition of T3. But if you look at the studies that have found effect, positive effect, with the addition of T3, it wasn't based upon lab testing. They simply took a group of patients and they randomly would, in one study, put half the patients on T4, half the patients on T3. Uh, and I believe it was actually a, a crossover, so they, they then flipped them back. And essentially what they found was about 45% of people prefer, prefer a T4, T3 combination medication, and about 18% of people prefer a T4 only medication. But it didn't matter what their lab results were. And this may not come down to needing to do a very meticulous assessment, but there's been some discussion that some people may have gene polymorphisms that detract from their ability to ideally convert T4 into T3. And so, again, you can make an argument about doing more in-depth thyroid testing, but it's probably a bit simpler to start someone off with a T4 medication. If they don't respond optimally, switch them over to a T4, T3 medication, allow for a couple dose adjustments, and if after that you're not feeling well, the problem is most likely not the thyroid, the problem may be somewhere else. And one of the first places to start is the gut. And I'm sorry if I'm being a little bit long-winded here, but one of the reasons for that is because people with impaired gut health have impaired absorption of thyroid hormone. And so sometimes the simple solution to the problem, again, is not the thyroid. It is actually fixing the gut so that they can more adequately and consistently absorb their dose of thyroid hormone. And I, I can't tell you the number of patients who have to have their thyroid hormone dose decreased after improving their gut health. And this is likely not because there's been a, a massive improvement in the thyroid gland autoimmunity. That wouldn't manifest that quickly. But it's most likely that there has been a improvement in the absorption of the gut, therefore a more, a more consistent and a more uh, vigorous absorption of the thyroid hormone medication, and therefore the person no longer needs as high of a dose and they can decrease their dose. So I know that was a lot. I'll pause there for a second. 
no, that, that's really, really helpful. And, I, and I, I agree. I see the same thing. I see people being given, um, it's called thyroxine in Australia, and then obviously they go through, you know, quite a specialised gut healing protocol and their numbers go completely the other way around. And obviously in this instance you would, I think you would need to test on, I mean, I'll get your opinion shortly, but to make sure that obviously with that increased absorption that you know what the thyroid is doing so that the adjustment can be made accordingly. Is that how you would approach things? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two ways you can look at that. Um, if someone has, of course, if someone has clear signs of gastrointestinal distress, gas, bloating, reflux, diarrhea, ulcers, constipation, abdominal pain, and you ameliorate all of those symptoms and someone's been on thyroid hormone the, the entire time, there's a, there's a, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I would loosely estimate maybe 30% of patients have such a dramatic change where they start to exhibit symptoms of hyperthyroidism or overdose of the medication and and need to have the medication fairly swiftly reduced. Um, but yes, I, I would I certainly think it's it's a prudent approach to monitor someone's TSH and T4 and potentially their their T3 also as they're undergoing or as they're healing their gut, because there's a good probability that they will need, you know, less of a dose of thyroid hormone. Yes. Yeah, good. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think it is interesting because, as you said earlier, like the thyroid symptoms are are very nonspecific. So it's things like, you know, uh, sorry, um, poor temperature regulation. It's obviously m- metabolic. It's things like hair and skin and nails and fatigue and brain fog and libido. And I think people are looking for an explanation as to, you know, why they're feeling this or experiencing these symptoms. Um, but obviously there is much more to it. So from a, a gut point of view, obviously we know that um, there is a, a degree of T4 to T3 conversion in the gut. Um What's been your experience with obviously addressing gut health and then what you see? Um, we probably should take a step back before you answer that question, though, just to touch on the importance of the and the difference between T4 and T3 for the benefit of the listeners, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. Um, so the, the thyroid gland is, is signaled by a molecule called TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and that tells the gland to produce T4, which is predominantly produced by the gland. A small amount of T3 is also produced by the gland, but most of the T3 is actually converted through the body in the periphery or, or in the different tissues of your body. And it's the T3 that actually has cellular effect. And this is, this is if it tells you where the problem is coming from. And so if you don't understand where the problem is coming from, then you're just, you're just um, quantifying the symptom rather than trying to determine the cause. And without getting too far afield, I should also mention that you know, we, we look at a lot of these labs as, as being incredibly accurate, but there are there's been quite a bit of criticism against the one of the lab methodologies that's used for free T4 as being very inaccurate. And and it's known as the analog immunoassay. And it's it's one of the more prevalently used methodologies for testing free T4. And that has been heavily criticized. And, and there, there's other methodologies that have been shown to be valid. But there are major labs in the United States that offer the analog immunoassay methodology for T4 or, or more accurately for free T4. And that has been strongly criticized for not being very accurate. So it's important to 
mention or to keep in mind that labs are not perfect and we should not be making decisions solely based upon labs. Labs certainly have a time and a place, um, but if you're someone who is uh, so meticulously monitoring your, your TSH or your T4, remember, if you're not using an accurate form of T4, then you may have a very inaccurate gauge. And also remember that TSH can fluctuate in the course of a day by, I believe, 1.2 points normally, and I believe from month to month, 0.9 uh, by 0.9. So again, I, you know, just quickly, I know it's a little bit off topic, but um, it's important not to obsess over labs because sometimes small changes don't mean a lot. And I just mentioned that because I have some patients who come in and they've literally graphed out their, their TSH and T4 for years and they get very concerned if their TSH increases by 0.8. Um, and really, I think that's just more creating more fear and, and destructiveness from the fear than it is actually creating benefit. But to your earlier question, TSH signaling molecule from the brain to the thyroid, T4 predominantly what's produced by the gland, and then T3 is predominantly uh, created or, or converted from T4 in the periphery, and it's the T3 that actually has cellular effect. Yeah, actually, really, really important to clarify that. And in terms of the gut and how that conversion actually takes place, what have you then seen with increasing that conversion, um, you know, once you do start to address gut health? Well, I, I can't say that I actually track this closely in the clinic because for about two years, I ran the expanded thyroid panels on every patient and I, I really did not find them to be useful. Um, and so now we, we do run them on, on occasion on some patients, but we have a more curtailed panel. And oftentimes, if on initial testing, we don't find hypothyroidism, then we don't really worry about retesting the T4 and a T3 because it's not the cause of the problem. And oftentimes what ends up happening is someone ends up feeling a lot better. And so I'm not concerned about doing a ton of retesting to quantify things. Um, so I can't say that I've been tracking. I mean, there is some validity to, there's some research showing that people who are in the upper half of the range of, of T3 tend to feel better than people that don't. And certainly there's research showing that people that have inflammatory issues, since it's known in some circles as non um thyroid or euthyroid sick syndrome, where people feel sick, but they don't have a thyroid problem, they oftentimes have elevated reverse T3. Uh, but again, because it's it doesn't change much of what you do in the clinic, I haven't been tracking it too closely, so I, I can't really comment much on what I've seen there. Cool. So what is your approach to improving thyroid health? Like, How do you identify that that's something that needs to be done and um, what else do you do to treat that? Well, there are certainly some things that can be very helpful, and it, it depends on what you're dealing with. Now, and, and this is actually probably quite a bit more simple than maybe some people have heard from, from other uh, you know people's perspective on thyroid, and I remain open to anything, but I, I try to only do what is most effective, and oftentimes I've found by focusing on what's most effective, you actually get better results because you're not distracted by things that may not be meaningful. Um, so... What I do, you know, first we oftentimes start with a thyroid panel, TSH, free T4, and we do oftentimes include with that free T3 um, just to see if there are any egregious imbalances there. And depending on the history, we may also include thyroid autoimmunity, typically assessed by TPO, thyroid peroxidase, and TG thyroglobulin. And if someone comes back with hypothyroidism, we get them on a thyroid medication. And we may start with 
we, we, we may recommend starting with a T4. We may recommend starting with a T4, T3. Sometimes when you recommend starting with a T4, T3, you get pushback from the endocrinologist, which I think is understandable because some people on T4, T3 combinations do exhibit signs of overdose because they're sensitive to the T3. So oftentimes we'll have someone start with a T4 and at the same time go to work on any other issues if there's, for example, co-presenting gut issues. If after time on the T4 and or in conjunction with improving their gut health, their symptoms aren't gone, then we may consider a T4, T3 combination instead. Um, now, that, that begs the question how you define hypothyroid. And, and this, is, you know, this is where there's some debate. Typically, you know, the, the, the standard definition is really someone according to the conventional ranges who is high in TSH and low in T4. And that, that signifies hypothyroid. That's a pretty straightforward diagnosis to make. That's actually pretty simple. It, what's more challenging is, is the entity known as subclinical hypothyroidism. And this is where someone has high TSH according to the conventional ranges, so usually above 4.5, but normal T4. And the data here really shows that the only benefit seems to start to occur for when people have a TSH in excess of 10. And so this is very important to mention because you may see someone who has subclinical hypothyroidism where their TSH is, let's say, 5.5. And what happens in the majority of cases, over 50% of these cases of subclinical hypothyroid, which again is high TSH, in this case, let's say 5.5 and normal T4, the majority of those cases will actually spontaneously remit or, or without doing anything, they will go right back to normal within a few months. Um, so for, for people who have TSH above 10, then treatment may make sense. There's also an age gradient with, with the TSH, meaning that the older someone is, the more normal it is to see a creeping up of the TSH. So if you see a TSH of, let's say, 11 in someone who's 76, they most likely do not require treatment. And, and when I say they most likely don't require treatment, it's because we've done studies. There have been studies performed treating geriatrics with mildly subclinical hypothyroid with medication and, and show no benefit. Now, if you see that TSH of 11 – in someone that is, let's say, 28, then they're a much stronger candidate. They, they have a much higher probability of benefiting from thyroid medication. So those are a few things that are important to kind of sort out regarding do you check off and treat the hypothyroid box or not. Um, now, of course, foundational to all of this is improving someone's gut health if there are any problems with their gut health. Because like I mentioned earlier, it will improve their absorption and make the, the consistency of their dose much improved, uh, dose of their, their thyroid hormone that is. And it can also improve thyroid autoimmunity. Now, there was one notable Italian study that found that the treatment of H. pylori could actually cause a significant improvement in thyroid autoimmunity. There's also one case study that showed the treatment of blastocystis hominins was able to reduce thyroid autoimmunity and also reduce the need for or reduce the, the, the dose of thyroid medication. Um, now, there's something else here that ties in with the gut that's important to mention, and that is if someone has ongoing gastrointestinal issues, and most, most of the research has been around H. pylori infections and or ulcers, they may do better on a 
more easily absorbed form of thyroid hormone. And in the United States, this is known as tyrosine, and it's actually a liquid gel capsule of thyroid hormone. And so if people maybe have a tough gut situation that doesn't look like it's going to be improving anytime soon, then you may not be able to ideally optimize their gut health and therefore their absorption of the thyroid medication. So switching them to a more absorbable form Tyrosine, a liquid gel cap, has been shown in clinical trials in those with ulcers and in those with H. pylori to cause a much more consistent level of their thyroid hormones. So that's something that I think doesn't get maybe the, the, the amount of attention that it deserves because there is a, a group, a subgroup of those with IBS and those with IBD that may not ever achieve fantastic gut health, right? If, if you're a very severe case of Crohn's disease, for example, then if you don't end up having a, a part of your intestines removed, that's considered a pretty good outcome. So those, so those patients may never have pristine gut health. And so they may need a form of thyroid hormone that's a little easier to absorb. Uh, and then I, I have some thoughts for you regarding thyroid autoimmunity, but I'll, I'll pause there for a moment if you have any questions before I jump into that. Yeah, I was just interested to know, um, I guess what I'm trying to understand more is how you identify these things without doing too much testing. Like obviously with things like the parasites or H. pylori, you need to know they're there to treat them to then have that positive flow-on effect to thyroid health. Could you maybe explain a little bit more about how we balance out testing in that sort of situation? Sure. I mean, it, it, the testing part is actually fairly easy. When someone comes in, I would run a TSH, a free T4, and a free T3. And if they have gastrointestinal symptoms, I would also run a profile for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, at least a two-hour, uh, preferably lactulose breath test that assesses hydrogen and methane. And in addition to that, I'd run a, a comprehensive parasitology analysis that will look for ova, parasites, protozoa, uh, pathogenic bacteria, dysbiotic bacteria, and yeast, and then treat what you find. And and so it's it's not an excessive amount of testing. That that actually is a fairly curtailed and reasonable amount of testing. Um, and treat what you find, and then retest what has been shown to be imbalanced, and it's actually fairly simple. So it's, it, you know, I know there's, there's not a, a ton to go into there, but it's really not much more complicated than that. No, and I appreciate that. I, I guess it's just important to clarify what you think is um, not a lot of testing. Like obviously, as you mentioned with the, the numbers before the three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, like other people are going in and, and being, you know, advised to get a lot more testing, which is obviously what we're trying to avoid, but it's still good to know what you do prioritize and that there are obviously key things that we need to be looking at. Right. And, and so someone could also be advised to do a number of tests that I think are not beneficial or at least not necessary out of the gate that would drive up the lab bill and potentially distract you from treating the root cause. This would be adrenal testing, heavy metal testing, Lyme testing, food allergy testing, mapping someone's microbiota, meaning getting getting a detailed analysis of every single species of bacteria in the gut and getting a weighing of the different taxa and how they're represented. You know, these would all be things uh, that would not be necessary. Also, gene testing. So, if you did all those things I just mentioned, this is how you arrive at a three, four, five thousand dollar lab bill instead of a eight, nine, 
$1,100 lab bill. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Good. And then you were going back to thyroid autoimmunity. Yeah. So, so thyroid autoimmunity can be improved by one's gut health, like we discussed a moment ago, but there's also a few other factors that can be helpful. Uh, you know, from a dietary perspective, I think it's important to mention that there was one study done, one clinical trial performed that showed the ability to lead to a 40 to 44% reduction in thyroid autoimmunity, de- depending on which antibody was tested, after adherence to a um, ad libitum, which means it's kind of at, at your discretion, lower carb diet, where they were instructed to avoid uh, grains, rice, fruits, um, and to focus on leafy green vegetables and healthy cuts of meat, uh, essentially. And this this led to about a 200 gram of carbohydrate a day diet, and it led to a fairly pronounced improvement in thyroid autoimmunity. Now, I should mention that when you say a carbohydrate reduction, that doesn't mean you go all the way to the extreme of a ketogenic diet where you're going very low carb. This was just a simple carbohydrate reduction. It showed a nice improvement in thyroid autoimmunity. And I mention this because a number of patients have asked me, if I go on a lower carb diet, doesn't that damage my thyroid? And that's not true. That, that's, that's a confusion of the data. Uh, what essentially has been found is the, the carbohydrate content of a diet does not have an impact on your thyroid gland health, period. But what does happen is if you are going too low carb, meaning very low carb, similar to ketogenic, or too low calorie for too long, your body goes into a starvation state. And that negatively affects the conversion of your thyroid hormones in addition to a number of other hormones in your body. So it's not that the thyroid gland is being damaged. It's how all your hormones are being utilized is being skewed because your body's essentially going into a starvation response. Um, So it's important for people to understand that, important to understand that this one study with a um, moderate restriction of carbohydrate showed an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity. Also what's interesting here in this study, I I believe it was 84% of participants showed some degree of carbohydrate malabsorption. And what this may indicate is part of the reason why these people improved may be because they they don't absorb carbs well. They may be fructose malabsorbers, malabsorbers, lactose malabsorbers, uh, and they may have a degree of bacterial overgrowth that corresponds with that. Now, some of these people may have benefited predominantly from removing grains out of their diet, especially gluten. Some people with gluten certainly will improve uh, in, in terms of their thyroid autoimmunity just from that change. But it doesn't account for the carbohydrate malabsorption. And so I would I would suspect that this lower-carb diet had an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity in a twofold fashion. One, by reducing some of the inflammatory foods like grains, um, and then also by restricting carbohydrates for which these people probably had a poor ability to absorb carbohydrates and they they may have been feeding things like dysbiosis in the gut um, when eating too much carbs and then by restricting those carbs, they improved their um, their dysbiosis and that may have had a positive impact on their gut health. And there, there is a mechanism that we can tie in there. Some of that may be mediated by histamine, but that's, that's getting us a little bit far afield. Um, coming back to other treatments for thyroid autoimmunity, Vitamin D has been studied, and there's actually been two, maybe three clinical trials, but one clinical trial which was done that that had the most impressive setup. Essentially, first put patients on 
thyroid medication for six months before starting on vitamin D. Why this is important is because thyroid medication has been shown to lower thyroid autoimmunity. So it's important we acknowledge that and, and give that it's, it's just due. Um, but if you start someone on thyroid medication and vitamin D at the same time and you try their thyroid autoimmunity, you may see a false, you know, you may attribute falsely to the vitamin D what may have happened from the thyroid medication. So they waited six months before putting people on thyroid, uh, I'm sorry, vitamin D, and they showed a significant reduction in the thyroid autoimmunity. And there was another similar study that showed a reduction in thyroid autoimmunity after vitamin D. So vitamin D, a simple, easy intervention, the doses were not high, they were proximal to somewhat standard maintenance doses. And there was another study that looked at selenium, magnesium, and CoQ10 and found improvement in thyroid autoimmunity and also improvement in thyroid gland, what's known as echogenicity or the findings that you see on an ultrasound. Uh, and so that's that's pretty exciting looking at, at, at those studies. Now, regarding selenium, I should mention that when you look at all of the data you see that selenium has utility th up to three months, six months, and then much beyond six months, selenium does not appear to have benefit for a thyroid autoimmunity. So that's good because that brings us back to this cost-effective model of functional medicine, which is not using high clinical doses of selenium in perpetuity, but rather realizing that most of the benefit is probably achieved by what we may term a pseudo-repletion at three or up to six months, and then there's no longer a need for selenium. Of course, that's that's a decision you can make one-on-one -on -one with your doctor or, or with your nutritionist, but the, the data fairly clearly indicates that beyond six months does not tend to be highly beneficial. Right. So you've obviously got some other nutrients there, though, as well, that um, that's something that you focus on in the clinic as well as looking at the um, pharmaceutical route? Yeah, I mean, we typically, if we see thyroid autoimmunity, we'll we'll put someone on a blend of vitamin D, magnesium, and CoQ10 and, and selenium, um, and we'll we'll monitor their antibodies and we'll have them curtail off that. Usually, some somewhere around six to nine months. Um, and then regarding the antibodies, it's it's important to mention that um, not so the the antibody level or degree of elevation is important. And and Stephanie, is is the cutoff for TPO antibodies in Australia, is it about 35? Is that what it looks like on your guys' labs? Okay. So then it's the same here in the United States. Now, above 35 is considered quote-unquote positive, but if someone's in the low hundreds, there's some preliminary data, and certainly my clinical experience reinforces this, that shows the low hundreds is actually normal or, or semi-normal or what we might term a clinical win. When someone is above 500, and especially if they're in the, you know, uh, 1,000, uh, you know, um, 1,000, 1,200, 1,500, then that's more so cause for concern. And this is important because what happens sometimes, and I, and I think most people out there who, who run antibody tests and then work with people and then repeat those tests will will know exactly what I'm talking about. When people are doing little for their health and they have thyroid autoimmunity, they oftentimes come in with TPO antibodies that are 800, 900, 1300. And then when they improve their diet, take vitamin D, perhaps take a probiotic, improve their gut health, exercise a little bit, reduce stress, get enough sleep, and they come back months later and they're feeling a lot better, you retest their antibodies and their antibodies are now 300, 
225. And sometimes people get feared and thinking they have to keep doing more, 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 more until we hit 35 or below. And I really think that that's a misguided approach because, again, there is some preliminary data that suggests that if you're underneath 500 and, in my opinion, ideally between 100 and 300, the the autoimmunity is, is fairly well managed and your minimal risk for progression of the thyroid condition and you can just keep doing what you're doing and not be overly concerned about that low level positive finding of the thyroid antibodies yeah awesome so obviously a huge focus on gut controlling inflammation um, some dietary changes then we've got d magnesium selenium coq10 and of course all those lifestyle foundations like stress management and um, sleep which we can't ignore so there's definitely a really amazing holistic approach to thyroid health so thank you for sharing that with us is there anything else you wanted to add on that that treatment no, I think that that gives people a pretty good narrative. And, and like you said, yes, the, the foundation is diet and lifestyle. And, and that, of course, includes sleep, exercise, stress management, and, and figuring out a good diet plan for you. And there's some supplements that can be done on, on top of that, like we mentioned, and also looking into optimizing someone's gut health. Uh, and of course, if they are hypothyroid, getting on a medication and considering trying you know, a couple of different formulas. And, and that's going to get results for the vast majority of people without a lot of expense and without a lot of hassle. Yeah, amazing. That's a really good summary. Thank you for sharing that with us. I just wanted to briefly touch on uh, touch on SIBO and what you do in clinic. Um, you know, we've had quite a number of SIBO podcasts on the show, so I will link to the, those in the show notes so that you don't need to go into, you know, huge detail in terms of definitions and so on. Um, but just tell us about how you use that clinically and um, more about what you pick up in terms of how that then shapes your treatment. Well, SIBO is actually very important in in relation to thyroid health. And there, there was one study in particular that surveyed or, or analyzed about 1,800 patients, and they were trying to determine what the greatest risk factor for um, having SIBO was. And they looked at things like prior intestinal surgery, use of immunosuppressive drugs, use of acid-lowering medications. And amongst all the factors analyzed, they found that the two most uh, predictive or, or highly associated conditions for developing SIBO were either being hypothyroid or being on thyroid medication after someone was diagnosed with hypothyroid. So there's there's definitely a, a connection between thyroid conditions and SIBO. And this is why I probably see so much of this in my office is because they, they are interconnected. So um, I'll, of course, do a, a SIBO breath test on the majority of patients. And if we find SIBO, we will treat SIBO. And, and sometimes all that's needed to treat SIBO is dietary changes. In fact, what I typically do is have someone perform the test and then while we're waiting for the results to come in, I'll have them change their diet. Sometimes it'll be paleo diet, sometimes it'll be a low FODMAP diet. And then when they come back in a few weeks later, we'll see how they're doing and we'll see what the labs show. For some patients that had SIBO but then change their diet, they come in and all their digestive symptoms are gone just by changing their diet. So great. We don't have to necessarily worry about these lab findings or, or at least not today. Um, also, some patients will only need a probiotic to 
treat their SIBO. And, and that's typically, in my opinion, assessed symptomatically. If someone has positive SIBO and then I put them on a probiotic and all their symptoms go away, we oftentimes will wait months to retest the SIBO to make sure that they've maintained that improvement. But oftentimes, for, for the mild cases of SIBO, all that's needed is a probiotic. And if not, then you can get into the the you know more progressively uh, tiered treatments like herbal antimicrobials, or potentially pharmaceutical antibiotics, or even a specialized liquid diet known as the elemental diet. And all those can work very well. There's some other things that can be done that are more, um, uh, you know, nuanced for SIBO, but people can get a lot out of those simple concepts. And oftentimes, if someone has a, a thyroid problem and they have SIBO, coming back to some of my opening remarks, if they're on a thyroid medication and they're still expressing symptoms and then you find SIBO and you treat that SIBO, the symptoms that they thought were thyroid symptoms might go away because it was actually the SIBO driving those symptoms. So I, I hope that kind of answers quite your, uh, your question there. Yeah, perfect in terms of that connection as well because I think it's really important that, you know, we stop looking at these conditions or symptoms in isolation, you know, as we were discussing briefly at the start of the show, you know, that the human body is obviously quite complex and, and things are definitely a reflection of, you know, an underlying issue that might not be as obvious straight away, but it's obviously really important to get to the underlying cause. So we're looking at, you know, what we need to treat and obviously how to do that in the mo- most cost-effective way. Exactly, yeah. Beautiful. So I wanted to then um, switch gears and just hear a little bit more about some projects that you've got going on at the moment. So firstly, I'd love for you to share more about your podcast and direct our listeners that want to hear you speak more frequently. Yeah, well, thank you. The, uh, the The podcast has been a lot of fun. I've been hosting it now for about two, almost two and a half years, I guess, and, and it's grown quite quickly and it, it's been a great platform for sharing information. We do a weekly podcast. It's under my name, which is Dr. Ruscio Radio. And if you if you just search my name, Michael Ruscio, and, and podcast or iTunes, that'll easily come up. It's also easily accessible through our homepage, which is drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And yeah, the, the podcast has been a great way to share information. Yeah, amazing. It's very... Um... I think very comprehensive as well as being able to break down all of the myths that we see in the functional medicine and health space. Um, So that's very exciting. And then even more exciting, which I know um, you're personally very, um, very excited about, share more with us about a book that you've got on the way. Yes, this has been uh, a labor of love and a long time in coming, Uh, but I, I just finished writing a book the, the working title right now is Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and it will publish February 1st. It will be available on Amazon, and we go into a lot of detail about gut health and how to optimize your gut health, also dispelling myths about gut health, and it, it's, a, I think, a very interesting storyline that, that teaches the reader a lot about their gut health and what's important, and then I think most impactful at the end of the book all the information that we cover is codified into a personalized step-by-step approach. And when I say personalized, I mean if someone only has mild symptoms, they only may need to do two steps out of the steps outlined. And and you know, as you go through the steps, there's a reassessment at, e- at each step that guides you through where to go. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure guide, and you choose based upon your level of response. So for people that are are 
strong responders and may only have mild cases, they may be in and out very easily. For people that have things like severe IBS or severe IBD, they may need more steps and, and the book you know, unfolds to, or the self-help portion of the book unfolds to help you, you know, individually. And so it's not a one size fits all approach, but it's very, um, you know, uh, changeable to, to an, an individual's needs. And so I'm very, very excited because it's been a long, long time, a lot of work, and I'm happy to have that almost out. Yeah, awesome. A labor of love, as you say, and we'll definitely keep our eyes peeled for that early next year. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and being on the show with us today. We look forward to following your journey and I'll direct all the listeners to the show notes so they can definitely check out your website and, of course, jump onto iTunes and get connected with Dr. Ruscio Radio. So thank you again, Michael. It was great to speak with you. Thank you, Steph. You too. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.